Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we're going to answer the question, who will build the roads? And I've got Norman here with me. Hey, Norm. Hey, Doug. But if we're just going to talk about who's going to build the roads, I mean, we can just say the market's going to do it, and then we can be done, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for being on our episode, and we hope you'll join us next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Okay, just kidding. We're not actually going to do a very short episode, just having a little bit of fun. But we did want to address the question, who will build the roads? Because, of course, this is, you know, this has actually become so much of a common question. It's actually a joke. Uh, It's a meme. (laughs) (laughs) It's a meme. It's a joke. It's like... It's just like what we do. Who will build the roads? And then it becomes who will uh, deliver the pizza or whatever. Like there's just always <laughs> like, well, who will do this if it weren't for the state? And so it got me to thinking and I thought, you know, Norm and I could talk about this a little bit. I just had a thought experiment because and I want to kind of do this because there there are a number of things that everyone says, well, you know, you got to have the government doing schooling. Uh, you got to have the government, you know, making sure that people are licensed properly to braid hair. Uh, you got to have the government for national parks or just parks in general or libraries or, or of course, roads. And I thought, well, if that's really all you want, like if you just could only, ha- if you had to pick one, which one thing could you live with the government doing? And I would be okay, you know, like in, in an argument with somebody, I would just be like, yeah, sure, if you want the government to build the roads, great. That's like 9% of our budget is infrastructure of the federal government. It's like, well, now we got a 90% smaller state. Yeah. I'll take that deal. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's got to be, the caveat is you got to get rid of everything else. <laughs> right, correct. Now, obviously, we, we at, that, at some point, let's say we lived in that world, then we'd all realize that government is probably terrible at building roads. Yeah. But uh, Norm, what would be the one thing in the list of things I just kind of mentioned that you'd be like, eh, I could live with the government doing that? I think mine would probably be one that you didn't actually list, but what comes to mind for me is libraries. Because <laughs> I, I mean, frankly, I like libraries, and and I don't think that they're that mismanaged per se. I mean, there's probably they can probably be done more efficiently, but if that's the only thing that the government had going for it. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I could get rid of yeah. everything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll, you'll also notice that there's there's like a negative way to ask this question. It's like, well, if the government had to have its hands on only one thing, which would be the least important thing? Because we know the government would, the state would mess it up. And so <laughs> um, I really don't want education messed up. I don't want healthcare messed up. I don't want all kinds of things. I don't want business life messed up by an institution uh, through coercion. So we, we could talk about all of these things and we're going to kind of go through them, you know, with some, with some answers here, but just a thought experiment. Like if you had to live with one, just think about what you, what you would, what you would live with. So who will build the roads? Um, we're going to get to that and answer that question, but I'm going to make you wait till the end because of course, that's why you tuned into this episode. So let's talk about 
primary schooling. Okay. So I know that right now people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and basically every leftist wants to give quote unquote free education, uh, paid for college education to everybody. Okay. And, and yet there are still, there's a debate over whether college education should be paid for by the state or the federal government. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of people debating whether or not the state should provide education for like you're and my kids who are much younger. Um, But libertarians make that argument. And there are people walking away from publicly funded or government funded, mandatorily funded, I should say, uh, schooling. Coercively funded. There we go. (laughs) Uh, There's all kinds of people like walking away from that and choosing an alternative. And, and it's not, it doesn't quite have the stigma it used to uh, because people are making those decisions for non-religious reasons and there's, and, and so forth. Well, and the um, results are really good too. Yes. And the results are really, really, really good. Um, not in every place, uh, of course, but in so many places, the, the option to school in a different way uh, has led to greater results. So this one, we'll just kind of start with possibly an easy one. Like, well, if, if the government doesn't provide education, for everyone, uh, whether or not they choose to partake of it, then what will happen? Who will educate our kids? That's really the question. It's like, well, you you can't have government not schooling. I mean, education is critical. I mean, we, you know, it's it's so important to the development of our culture, to the development of our society, technology. I mean, we need to innovate and all these other things. I mean, I shouldn't have to explain all the arguments for why people say education is so important. Duh, we believe education is important. So, what would happen if the government just decided we're going to stop educating kids? We don't care. Does that mean that kids are just not going to get educated? I don't think so. I mean, we, we could ask the question, how did, how did anybody, how does anybody get educated at all? Well, yes, it does involve sometimes teachers, but fundamentally the kids begin education in their homes with their parents. And it goes from there to a different uh, varying levels of growth. Uh, and you can, there are very many different opportunities that one can envision as to how education can be provided for in a free market, whether that's homeschooling, where the parents just decide, yeah, we're going to do all of it here at home from, from here until, you know, whatever, whatever we decide is the time, uh, time and place that we will, you know, we can send our adult uh, child off on their own. Uh, to, you know, varying types of prep schooling or private schooling in, uh, you know, in the more, dare I say, traditional format of, you know, grades and kindergarten and blah, blah, blah like that. Or there's differing models even than that. I mean, there's most people have no idea how many different kinds of models there are for education in the first place, whether that's uh, the Sud, like the Sudbury model, which my wife and is is trying to kind of start one of those schools here in in the St. Louis area, or uh, the Montessori style of schooling, or the Waldorf style, or there's also homeschooling. There's things that we might call unschooling. I mean, there's tons of different ways and methods. And the th- and the fact is, is that trying to shoehorn everybody into the same type of the public school system is actually doing children quite a disservice. And it certainly doesn't help people who have particular needs uh, that might preclude them from having a good experience or a good education at all in a public school system. And so that it just it leads one to, to go uh, like, well, if the government is just going to consume so much resources in doing education provision, I mean, how much more effective and efficient and better can the private market do if it is allowed to flourish and 
you know, and come up with different price points and different opportunities and differing ways of, of going through any of it. Well, it's, it's interesting that you brought up the, the idea of price points because I can just imagine that the different models of schooling, and, and I'll just add there for a second, that there are also blended models where like the student goes to a typical traditional schooling system for some of the education and they do the rest at home. There's also that that's, that's becoming popular. But imagine, I can imagine that, you know, if, if we have a listener saying, no, it's more important than that. This can't be. Uh, but because what about, what about all the kids who can't afford or whose parents can't afford to make these choices? It's sort of like, you know, it must be nice to buy everything organic because, you know, you got to be able to afford those kinds of things. And so it is, is the ability to choose between all those different types of schooling options and kind of opt out of the compulsory schooling of the state, something that is a luxury good at this stage in the way in America, at least. So the thing is, what about the poor kids? Cause they can't afford to do that. I think the the way we begin to answer that is just to look at the opportunities that are available now if you choose truly to take responsibility for your children's education. And I think that actually is a, a crucial component here that's kind of uh, perhaps perhaps somewhat ancillary to, to this part of the discussion. Um, but in asking the question, who will educate my children, you're kind of betraying a fundamental point here. And that's that apparently... By, you may not really consider it that it is your responsibility to take charge of the education of your children. Right. And that's probably a question that needs to be emphasized more and more in today's era uh, where people are looking to divest responsibility for, for, for their children and for varieties of other things that they should be responsible for and then passing off that responsibility to the state. Okay, so I'm going to make a an economic argument, not not quite an argument per se, but uh, I could come back with an economic argument that says, yes, fine, it's my responsibility to do that, but is it my responsibility to be the role of teacher? Shouldn't specialization come into play here where I know for certain that it would be way better time spent me earning money and paying somebody else to educate my children. And that could be specific educational needs or the general education. Well, Doug, that's a, that is a natural extension of the, of the argument, I suppose. And that's fine, but that's kind of asking a somewhat different question. Instead of just saying, well, who's going to do it? It's instead asking, how will I be able to ascertain or come to a conclusion of, to, of, of who I will select to educate my children? How will the market work? Can the market work in this regard? Now, that's a, that is a different question on some level because mm. um, we, now we're actually – we can, we can kind of talk about, all right, well, how does the market work to provide any good or service? Well, it, 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 it's about supply and demand. And if there is a demand, then, then the supply will, be, will come out and kind of be there to meet it. Now, in, in this specific case – if there's a variety of different price points even available for varying types of schooling, uh, then there'll be a variety of different opportunities that will be available for both people who are uh, of, of the more uh, wealthy groups and for the more, uh, those who, who don't have as much for those who are poor, uh, those opportunities abound. What is amazing is that especially in today's day and age, more than any, any point in history, are there opportunities for free education uh, especially in in the internet age, like I, I, it's just unbelievable the amount of things that you have opportunity to learn right now uh, via YouTube alone. 
is probably greater than than most of the than most libraries ever have ha- have had in their possession. That's insane when you start thinking about it. Uh, so there's there's really no there's no substantial argument that can be made that the only way that we're going to be able to get substantial education and good education in the United States today is if the government has control over all of it. That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we don't apply that reasoning to a whole lot of other things. Yeah. And I know many people try to do that with healthcare, but um, you know, I one of the things that it's actually on our FAQ page on libertarianchristians.com slash FAQ that education, it's so complex and it's such it's it hasn't been changed in about a hundred years. I mean, school buses don't even look different. How many, which automobile that you grew grew up riding around in, Norm, did looks exactly <laughs> the same as well. I guess those automobiles do look exactly the same. But you know what I mean? New automobiles look the same as don't, don't look know, the same old ones, but school buses seem to look. I the drive same. twenty year old cars, so I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just the way it works. I'm I'm getting there. <laughs> uh, so education hasn't really changed very much. Now it's starting to with the advent of the internet and a lot more opportunities. Uh, where the internet has reached, you know, the suburbs in high, you know, high-speed internet has reached those that are beyond the cities. And it seems like there's a lack of imagination as to how could it work. Well, that's true. But, in, but when Doug, we're so used to what it's, what's already happening. Doug, there, we could, you could kind of adjust what you just said, though, and say, like, per, perhaps we have seen a greater shift in opportunities and styles and methods of education in the last 10 years or 15 years, perhaps, than has ever been experienced in the history of mankind. I mean, that that's that's on the verge of, uh, that's pretty true at this point. Oh, yeah. And so we could say that there is no better time than now to eject the federal government and governments in general from the management of education. Yeah. Because of the innovations that are before us. Yeah, I mean, you obviously don't have to convince me. This well, yeah, like- <laughs> but <laughs> I get that. But the but the point is, like, we can, as our listeners get to frame their arguments for their, you know, interlocutors uh, at their at their you know dinner parties and churches or small group studies or whatever. These are the types of things to keep in mind. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. Okay, so I think we agree that education is something that is too important to be left up to the state uh, to handle and that we should advocate personal responsibility, even if that means outsourcing or whatever. But it's your job to educate your kids and find out the best way to do that. And that's not the state's job. So we'll leave that and go to the next thing because we were talking a little bit about what do we do with education with like kids who are poor? And so that naturally leads to maybe another question, which is, well, what about a safety net like welfare? Okay. And who will take care of the poor? And the first thing that I think of when I think of like, well, who will take care of the poor is, well, it's not like the government or the state at whatever level is taking care of the poor without people being in those positions. 
So who's going to take care of the poor? Why not the same people who are already in those positions taking care of them? They're just doing it without compulsory funding. So people will take care of the poor. Other people will take care of the poor. Just because there's no safety net, if, if we were to imagine a world without a, a federal or state level in the United States safety net, who will take care of the poor? Well, other people will. And you might think, well, wait, how do I know they will? Uh, what's my guarantee? And I remember Thomas Sowell answering that question, and it really stuck with me for, gosh, a decade now, that the fundamentals of liberty are incompatible with guarantees. And so when I talk with people about a social safety net and the kinds of things that we need to do to empower the poor and take care of the poor, uh, I often will say that, you know, because the, the mo- most people will be like, oh, well, voluntary charity just won't cover it. And even if that's true, there's reasons to believe that that's not really a true statement because there's, there's, it's very difficult to measure. But even if that were true, that's not really your only two options. Uh, and I think we brought this up a couple couple months ago on this on this podcast that in the past decade, I think it's been since 2007, so now it's 2019, there have been 271 million people in India who are no longer in poverty through market reform and basically market liberalization. So freer markets, their markets have been freed, and now there are 271 million. That's a lot of people, guys. Like That's nearly the population of the United States at the turn of this millennia. Yeah, like I'm actually getting chills about this. Like we've, We live in such an amazing time that we've been able to observe in the past, my lifetime, okay, so almost four decades, we've been able to witness population growth and poverty decline in just major, major strides. Okay. It's probably not inconceivable to believe that absolute poverty as we define it today will be gone in the next 20 years. Uh, that doesn't mean there won't be people who are poor and less off. Don't not saying that. Uh, but the question to kind of keep it back to what our goals here for this episode are, like who will take care of them? Well, part of it is the market will take care of them. And I don't mean to say that in a way that's like, oh, well, I think the market will take care of them. I don't really care about the poor. That's not really what I mean at all. Yeah, it's not just magic here. You know? No, it's it's not magic. It takes people who care. It does take people who will run businesses in such a way that they can use their profits to donate and to give to charity and to do outreach. Yeah. And I mean, there'll be nonprofits. There, there's all kinds of those things. There'll, there'll be, be nonprofits. churches. I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of ways in which the poor can, can be taken care of. And there's ways like businesses, businesses can also offer. I, I have a friend who lives in my area who started a business uh, basically for veterans who have really hard time getting jobs. And it's, you know, we don't often think of veterans as poor, uh, but they can be if they're unemployable due to the kinds of experiences that give them problems in the workforce uh, based on, you know, the government sending them overseas to f- fight wars they don't need to be fighting and doing things they no person should ever have to do in their life. They come home and they're not very employable and not all of them. I'm just saying this about some types of veterans. And I have a friend who started a business who he found a niche type of business that was for veterans that really helped them integrate back into society. And he's doing, I've told him, I'm like, dude, you're, you're doing the Lord's work. 
you know, and he, he's also a Christian, so he kind of knows this in, in some sense. And he doesn't Christianize his, his whole business operation, but he, he knows he's doing a, a service for people um, and he's helping those who are poor. Um, there are, I mean, there's just so many, so many options there, but I think it's really unfair to say that it's either charity or the state uh, doing it. Lack of imagination. Yes, it it it's evidence of an impoverished imagination. Yeah. Um, so I one thing that I always want to mention to people who are against welfare, and when I say against welfare, uh, what I mean is they don't think the state should should have a social safety net. Okay. So one thing that I always want to say to people who who already agree with us about this that this is in an, in the world we want to live in, we wouldn't we wouldn't want the state doing that. It's very easy to demonize the people who are receiving it. And I want to be clear that I don't ever want to belittle somebody or make them feel less than for receiving the kind of assistance that they need uh, and have opportunity to need because they are trying to better their lives. And the government may have crowded out real libertarian ways in which they could be helped. And the government may have also kept them and from getting better faster and from enabling themselves. Okay. So there are all kinds of things that the government is getting in their way, but that doesn't mean that they haven't made the best of a situation that we already deem as not ideal. And so I don't want to belittle or, or begrudge anybody for seeking help in ways that are, that have that opportunity for them. Uh, and and by that I mean people who are poor. I don't mean businesses seeking extra subsidies in that kind of welfare. That's not what I'm talking about. So we need to be clear that when we make claims about the kinds of people who are receiving welfare, that we have our data correct. And so we just lay off the ad hominem, if you will, when you're arguing with people about the welfare recipients. The other thing is, this is one of those, this is one of the two things that I actually throw out to people. I'm like, listen, if you just want people to use statist, if you want people to just not be destitute and you need roads, great. We got an 80% smaller government. Yeah. When do we sign me up? Because if, if and, and again, not, not proposing that, but accepting that as if that's really your concern, we're done here. But that's not really what happens, of course, because then then what we have is people saying, well, but we need to make sure that people are doing work that the government approves of and they're capable of doing. So we have licensing laws so that people who who want to break. Oh, you segue to that so naturally. It was excellent. So excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So that people who (laughs) occupational licensing. Yes, that's what we're talking about. Um, this is like the most egregious. I, I don't know. This just irks me the most because it's just so blatantly stupid. When I read articles about people being, you know, they go out of business because the so-and-so sued them because they didn't have a license or whatever. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, if there's any item that should be taken off the table is occupational licensing. And I actually have a compromise option, which we'll talk about. But if there's one item that keeps people poor. It's not letting them do work that they can do yeah. and want to do and are proud of doing. There's the, the, the argument for occupational licensing is tends to be at a very high level. Like, well, if you didn't have occupational licensing, then you'd have people doing medicine without a license. You'd have doctors claiming to be doctors and, and they wouldn't actually be doctors <laughs> or things like that. Funny thing is we still kind of have that. Well, well, that's true. <laughs> I don't, I know it. Uh, in fact, 
but that's a that's a whole other story. But the point is, right, is that we kind of throw this out there as like, oh, well, the worst the worst thing that could be is if the doctor decides or some somebody claims to be a doctor and yet is not. But but frankly, that's like that's a very difficult thing to pull off. And but but the ancillary or downstream effect is that well, if the government just gets the opportunity to 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 regulate and license all sorts of different occupations, um, then then there ends up being uh, these massive negative effects that not only affect the medical industry and, and the actual practice of doctors, but also so many other things uh, that have that the government has no business really being in in the first place, and that demonstrably make people poorer as a result. And so there is no, there is not a need for the government to deal in all sorts of different occupational licensing. We'd even argue that there's no need for them to be in it at all, for that matter. But in particular, we can think about things like, as you mentioned, hair braiding, or there's a variety of other things. And, and I mean, look in my own scenario of engineering, uh, I know what it, I know what the quote licensing looks like in that field as well, and that's really unfortunate. There's all sorts of ways in which the market already deals with this well. It doesn't need the state to regulate it. Yeah, licenses are the states taking away your right to do something and then selling it back to you. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I don't. I I, I wish that originated with me, but I, I read that. I'm sure in a meme somewhere on a libertarian Facebook page. Yeah. But uh, you know, I I have a a compromise to this to people who argue that we need these kinds of laws. And and again, there one it's one thing to say you should be allowed to braid hair and uh without a license. It is quite another. I realize that this goes down a slippery road in some ways, but the, it is another to say it's okay to call yourself a doctor and not really be a doctor. That's not okay. But there's an answer to this, I think. And one one time I was filling up my gas tank. And because in my state we're free to do that ourselves. Uh, <laughs> I was filling up my gas tank, wait, waiting there, and I'm like reading the side of the gas tank thing, and it said that the that basically it didn't pass inspection. That was basically like the sticker that was on the gas pump. And there I was pumping gas in a failed inspected gas pump, and I thought, wait a second, they let them do this? And that was my first thought. I was like, really? Like they actually let people run without this? And I thought. Oh my goodness, this is this is exactly how this whole licensing thing could be. This is like a really good compromise in my mind. It's like, okay, fine. So the compromise is basically this. Instead of, and again, I'm compromising here. I'm not proposing this as a libertarian proposition, but it's closer to giving people more freedom. It's basically let the consumer know, because that's really the whole thing here is consumer protection. That's the whole guise of this. It's like, oh, well, we got to protect consumers from, you know, going under the knife by somebody who's not really a doctor or getting their hair braided by somebody who's not a, I don't know if there's a professional term for it. So consumer protection, right? So make it the law that they just have to show what their credentials are. And those credentials can be Oh, I don't know. We can figure that out because there's all kinds of market credentials. I mean, how many times have people said that they have this and that degree when, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, now I have I, I trust them, right? So there's a lot of ways to build that respect and status. Um, you could you could have um proof of insurance if you're doing something that involves I don't know, like things that are way more potential to harm people than braiding. Let's go back uh, to your your uh, your gas station for a second. I mean, what's interesting there is that it didn't pass inspection per se, but like if that's a government deal, like, okay, fine, whatever. 
but there's, you know, there are certain things that we call calibrations and you could always put up, you know, if standard weights and measures, right? Uh, in fact, like for instance, if you, if you have a, a high value analytical balance in your lab or something like that, you often will have somebody from, from the company that made it come in and like calibrate it and then they'll put a sticker on it. Mm-hmm. And it'll say calibrated on this date and expires on this such such and such a date, and that's the the idea there is that they kind of know. Well, I mean, they want they want you to pay them to come back eventually and and recalibrate, but that's that's a good thing. <laughs> Ultimately, it keeps it keeps right, working. Right. But you can have calibration stickers even on something like a gas pump, and that could alert you to hey, this is okay. But yeah. it's also interesting, Doug, the way you even phrase that. It's like how you know are who's letting them do this? Well, well guess what? You are letting them do it too, because you saw the opportunity to say like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. It's, it didn't pass its inspection. I guess I can move elsewhere. And whether that's a calibration sticker or an inspection or whatever, it's like ultimately it's you at that point that's yeah, determining yeah. whether or not you're going to service or take that service. Well, and I think that the the argument against occupational licensing and those kinds of, basically the kinds of consumer protections that the state has historically done. And when I say historically, I mean like last hundred years or whatever <laughs> since the since the progressives have wanted to take over and influence everything uh that argument is becoming weaker and weaker as the prevalence of knowledge through internet and con- the connectivity that we have has become stronger and stronger so i could even see an argument made in say the 50s that you know how how is this person going to know there's no means for them to know that this person's trustworthy and therefore we need you know some sort of you know minimum level of competence you know before they're even allowed to do business i could hear you make an argument for that but not very much any longer cuz do i i don't really rely on oh well the government lets them be in business so they must be okay i go to yelp or i just go to google and i see whether there's reviews um, there's there's all kinds of ways in which you can discover whether or not something is trustworthy. Oh yeah, for instance, I mean, you tell you mentioned earlier about verifying that somebody has a degree or something like that. Well, you know, I mean, if you're if you've listened to this show for long, you've probably heard us talk about that. You know, I have a graduate degree from the University of Texas. Well, it turns out if you wanted to verify that, you could. You can go on, you know, utexas.edu right now and and look at the record of alumni. And you could find my PhD thesis. Like you can do that right now and read the nearly 200 pages of my PhD thesis if you want. I would be so happy if you did. But (laughs) you'd be the only one. I don't have have a PhD thesis, but I did write a master's thesis and that is not available online, I don't believe. Yeah, but the fact is, is like part of the reason why people even trust if you say like you have a degree at a place is, is that that's verifiable. Like you can verify. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And you, to the point at which you don't always even go, people won't do it. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, anyway, there's, that's a whole nother story. But the point is like, that's all of this stuff is very doable. You can do it now. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to go tangent here on uh, conspiracy theory. I think I know why the, my state, I live in Pennsylvania, lets the gas station dispense gas. If it's not been validated as like, I don't know, pure or authentic or whatever. Here's my conspiracy theory response. I bet I know they want people to put the they want people to put this into their tank because it's going to make their fuel economy go down and they're going to have to fill up more. And there's a Pennsylvania is like the highest tax. It might, well, I think like outside California, and New York, 
basically like the highest tax state for, for gas for gasoline. So it might it's in the state's best interest for not as good gas to go into our tanks because then we'll fill up more and they'll get more revenue. Yeah. I don't actually believe that. That's just my, you know, my conspiracy theory mind going yeah. going astray a little bit. Yeah, so they get more sales tax so, yeah. out of it. That's so, tricky. Um, That's tricky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they get they get a lot of sales tax out of it already. So. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So I'm sure that it's going to all good things like oh yeah parks and like the beautiful things that are out there in the world schools. that we just want to sit and enjoy. Oh yeah. And schools and, and things. Occupational licenses. So I'm sure that's an occupation. I'm sure it pays for the people who have to. Oh my gosh. I don't even want to go. <laughs> into this is like this just mind bogglingly stupid. So. Oh, moving on. I guess we're we're talking about we're talking about gasoline. There's no better segue to talk about the roads now because we promised everybody we would talk about the roads. So um, at some point we'd we'd end up on this road. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> oh, <laughs> first sound effect in like a hundred episodes, I think. Yeah, ever. Yeah. So, oh man. Who's going to build the roads, Norm? Is it going to be Domino's? Well, it'll probably be Walter Block, actually. But <laughs> why do you say Walter Block? I know why you say that, and I bet you half of our listeners do. Yeah. But for the other half, why do you say Walter Block? Well, the, the why I say Walter Block is, is that Walter Block has written probably the greatest series of articles and and essays and art and and papers on this topic of how a free market road system works that you'll find available. And there's even a collected set of those essays you can get called The Privatization of Roads and Highways, uh, Human and Economic Factors. It's published by the Mises Institute, and you can download it for free at Mises.org. So if you really want to delve deep, you go to that book. Uh, because that's definitely a great way to do it. Um, but there's there's all sorts of other, you know, kind of shorter ways of of going through the arguments. Uh, the, the chief of which is that, you know, w- when it comes down to it, if there were any organization in the United States that that uh, that was responsible for, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of deaths, people would be like calling for the state's head and uh, and and making sure that heads roll as a result of uh, as a as a consequence of those of those deaths. But if, it, if we start talking about highways, though, everybody just loses their minds, even though. Uh, state highways are responsible for 30,000 or more deaths a year. And so kind of the initial argument that we should bring forward here is that, well, who is going to build the roads? Well, maybe we should be asking, why should the state build the roads in the first place if they're so bad at it that they that 30,000 people die every year on them? And so perhaps we can start there, um, but then also go with, look, it, it, how does any good or service get provided in the free market and why does it survive? And that's when you start looking at just the basic economics of it, that a good or service is provided when there's a demand for it and the suppliers go to meet that supply at a price that is acceptable to those people that are consuming it. And roads being as essential as they are in the modern society uh, means that there's going to be a supplier for them. And in fact, you know, so many, so many roads are built uh, ultimately with state funding, but by private organizations. So we know that that it's not exactly it's not purely the state that builds them in the first place. It's that private organizations have to be recruited in order to do it from the start. So perhaps the next question then is, well, if they if they have to be recruited to build them, then perhaps uh, there can be private recruitment to fund them in the first place. And can there be a successful business that's run on the idea of well privatizing a road system? 
And the fact is, is that there's completely conceivable ways uh, by which we can envision how that might occur, whether it's by tolls or subscriptions of some kind, any of those ways are, are, are possible. And so that like we can kind of begin there and you can expand from there uh, to encompass a variety of different uh, arguments and means by which these things can work. I actually had somebody respond to me on Facebook. Well, if we had all toll roads, that would be immensely inefficient because I'd go 30 feet and I'd have a toll booth. Yeah, that's that's highly unlikely. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really? You you think that's actually how it would work when somebody would erect a toll booth? Instead of figure out with like their 30 neighbors or whatever, how to do it a little more efficiently than just like everybody makes a toll booth on their property line. Well, it's kind of crazy to that, that, that they would even say that considering that there's demonstrable evidence to the contrary all over the place. For instance, uh, just one example that I've, I've mentioned here and uh, maybe not on this podcast ever before, but uh, there was an instance in Texas uh, a number of years ago where in Abilene, Abilene, Texas, the home of Abilene Christian University, uh, incidentally, uh, of course, where my my uh, uncle used to work and back when he was still working. Uh, but great place. And Abilene's a wonderful place. But Walmart, incidentally, had a need to fix a bunch of the roads surrounding them. And the city was doing such a terrible job at trying to fix the issue that they just took it. The Walmart took it upon themselves to fix all the roads around them. They literally did this. And they did it be, not just to purely out of the goodness of their hearts, but to make for a better customer experience and making it easier to get there, making it, you know, just finally getting the problems taken care of, made it easier for people to to uh, to drive into the parking lot, to, you know, park their car, get, have a good experience, and then walk out feeling very happy that they had spent their money at Walmart. I mean, come on. This is how things work in in the in a free market. It's not that there's just that that Walmart's going to charge you a hundred dollars to park in their parking lot just so you can go shop there. They want to encourage people to go there, and there's private roads built all the time already. And so again, we've we've mentioned this before that people feel that there's no other argument for like, well, if we didn't have the government building roads, then it just wouldn't get done. Well, it's kind of a lack of imagination on a grand scale. Yeah. Well, it's. It's interesting you brought up Walmart because, you know, and Amazon is sort of the new Walmart of our time right now and being like chastised as being too much of a monopoly, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, wait a second. Don't you want the government to be a monopoly in like these 16 different areas? Yeah. Like if, you know, and I've had this thought, like if the government, if the federal government had set up a website that was as successful and big as Amazon the left wouldn't be complaining whatsoever. <laughs> or the right, for that matter. Or the right, uh, right. We'd all be, well, first of all, it couldn't happen that way. We know that. Yeah. But if that were the case, it would be, there'd be no problem. It'd be like, oh, well, why should we challenge that power? But now, because it's a, because of it's a private individual, it's like, oh, well, no one should have that much power and wealth. It's like, really? Like, come on. Uh, but, the, you know, the other thing is that we, we think about roads, and this is one of those like seen and unseen things from Bastiat. Yep. Why do we have to ask the question who will build the roads? Because maybe there'd be some other means of transportation if the government hadn't decided this was the method of transportation that is dominant in at least in the United States. Like there are other options. And we're going to take from everyone in order to fund it. Right. Yes. I mean, it could have been otherwise. Maybe that- we'd have flying cars by now. 
come on. <laughs> yeah, roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also the question, you know, and, and it is a question that's sort of a, it is a hypothetical. It is a, well, in an alternate world, we could have done this. But whenever you have the government involved in something that is about business or in this case, uh, we're dealing with like the building of roads, uh, it's going to make decisions that are going to be at the expense of other people yep. or at the expense of alternatives. I mean, that's true just in general. So with something like occupational licensing, there's going to be some people privileged over others and the government gets to decide kind of in some ways who wins and loses. And it's same with school, like the government gets to decide where the money goes. So there's a number of things that when the government decides that we're going to pave roads, as opposed to other opportunities in, say, like the 50s and the 60s, then that already made uneconomical other options. And maybe we live in a different world if the market were allowed to work. And maybe maybe we wouldn't be driving across the country as much as that's like a fun thing to do. <laughs> uh, but maybe there'd be something a little bit different. Now, not saying that that world would be better, but it would certainly be different. Maybe it would actually end up being the same. We just have more toll roads. Who knows? Uh, or maybe we'd already have, you know, self-driving cars because they'd be much more efficient by now. We don't know. Yeah. And possibly. actually, you know, Doug, that's a, you know, there, there's a good point here that I think as we close off that we should remind people of. And and that is that when you get into these discussions with non-libertarians about, well, how how is service X going to be provided if the government doesn't do it? There is a sense in which if I could answer that to everyone's satisfaction in the world, at, in every instance of every service that you object to that, uh, that would not be provided for by the state anymore, if I could answer all of that to your satisfaction, then perhaps what you should be doing is putting me in charge of it and having me run everything. But that's precisely what we do not want to happen, is to have any singular entity having control over all these things, let alone me of all people. Yeah, that's a road we won't go down. That's a road we will not go down. But the point is, is that, yes, it's good to have an idea and to be able to suggest these things, but to remind the people with whom you are arguing in a friendly way, of course, that we don't know how everything's going to turn out. But what we do know is that the government is not a good way of solving these types of problems because they inevitably use violence and force to get resources in order to accomplish these things. If we believe that peace is the way to prosperity in this regard, that if we have, if we go through voluntary interactions, to, it, that's the more important way of going through these sorts of interactions in the first place, well, then we have to, we have to accept then that the state's not going to be a good way of doing this and that the market can. I think that's a good place to end. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode. And we will certainly cover in the future some of the more difficult questions about who will provide for. And then there's a whole other kind of set of questions that are a little bit more complicated to go into. Uh, but we wanted to get started and, and open up your imagination to alternatives to the kinds of common questions. Who will build the roads? Who will provide for libraries and schooling and so forth? So thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.